Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, New France and Native Resistance. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Spain's Rivals. So, last time we covered the establishment of the Spanish Empire in the New World, known as New Spain. We discussed the impact of the Columbian Exchange, the abuse of natives, land and labor, conquests, and how Spanish power began to wane in the 17th century. Now, this lecture will jump around chronologically, as we are going to be discussing this major theme, so that next week we can dive into English migration and settlement. It is important to note that Spain was the first dominant European power in the Americas, but other nations got involved. If you remember back to our discussion of the Treaty of Tordesillas, the Portuguese settled on the coast of Brazil, and while this is going on, Dutch armies fought Spanish ones in the Netherlands while their ships plundered Spanish ships as part of their 80-year revolt against Spanish domination. French privateers also plundered the Spanish and burned Havana to the ground in 1555. Spain, as we saw, will retaliate in kind with their own atrocities against the French. Now, while Spanish power wanes in the 16th century, Europe is being rocked by the Protestant Reformation. Just as an example of the amount of conflict that this is going to create, it causes the French Wars of Religion, the Anglo-Spanish War, the Thirty Years' War, the Dutch Revolt, and many others. It is no coincidence that these wars and the Protestant Reformation coincide with France, the Netherlands, in England's late entry into the game of colonization. Each country had to iron out their own domestic situation before they could put forward more effort and treasure towards colonization. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Early Contact. Prior to the French wars of religion that would distract France from colonization, we see that in the mid-16th century, it was fairly well known that the Spanish lands in the New World was not India and Asia, but a new continent entirely. So, the French motivation to explore is an attempt to find what is called the Northwest Passage, a theoretical waterborne route that will take Europeans to Asia. One individual who took it upon himself to find such a passage was Jacques Cartier, who first set out in 1534. Cartier had three voyages, first navigating the Gulf of the St. Lawrence, then down the St. Lawrence River Valley, where he finally returned on his third voyage. After his first voyage, he thought that he had found an Asian island, but by the third he had given up looking for the Northwest Passage and instead attempted to build a settlement of 300 colonists at Charlesbourg Royale. Cartier, according to legend, named the area Canada after the native word for the region. Cartier met various bands of Iroquois and Algonquin Indians and had at times friendly and at other times not-so-friendly interactions. See, Cartier had stumbled upon native rivalries between the two major linguistic groups that dominated the area of Canada and upstate New York, as well as protruding into the area of New England and the Great Lakes. The first unit was the Iroquois Great League of Peace and Power, also called the Five Nations. These tribes were clustered in upstate New York along Lake Ontario all the way to the Hudson River. You should note, this is not a unified tribe or ethnic group, 
but rather a confederation of tribes that formed for mutual protection. The five nations practiced a mixed economy of hunting and gathering in horticulture. However, as some of you may be aware, this area has a shorter growing season and is cold, colder, meaning that farming cannot produce the amount of required sustenance to feed the population. Now, according to some sources, the five nations appeared to be inferior hunters and indifferent traders, at least at first. Their geographical position made them less favorable trading partners with the French, who sought furs from the numerous rivers that fed into the Great Lakes. But as I said, the Iroquois were formidable warriors, and they appeared to have a more militarized society than their neighbors. Due to circumstances that we will soon see, the Iroquois will generally oppose the French and the France's native allies in the region, and create a great deal of chaos and destruction as a result. The other major group in this area are Algonquin-speaking tribes arrayed around the Atlantic seaboard in northwestern margins of Iroquois to Lake Superior. One of these tribes is known as the Huron. Now, the Huron will have access to parts of the Great Lake regions and thus serve as an important intermediary with other tribes. They are also far better agriculturists than others, and they will help feed the French and their other native allies. Southern Algonquins practice horticulture, but northern ones do not, due to the colder climate and shorter growing season. To make up for this agricultural deficiency, they are expert fishermen, traders, and seasonal hunters. This, as well, as their dominant position along the St. Lawrence River Valley in Lake Ontario, made them attractive allies for the French. And as a result of being allied with the French, they will become subject to Iroquois raids that are going to be particularly devastating. Now, while Europe tears itself apart, new sources of food will be required since so much of the European countryside is being picked clean by rampaging armies. By 1580, the great banks off the coast of Newfoundland and Acadia were heavily fished by Europeans, with over 400 vessels manned by 12,000 sailors. Now, no single nation controls these waters. There is heavy competition and some fighting, but mostly the ships that come here fan out across this incredibly abundant area and catch cod in great numbers. Many of these fishing vessels establish shore camps along Newfoundland, Acadia, Canada, and Maine. These camps will lead to prolonged contact and trade with natives, as well as conflict. Many fishermen would end up taking Indian captives, which will have important implications for world history. However, this early contact is more important for the introduction of European diseases like smallpox, which run rampant and wipe out entire villages along the coastline. Again, I've mentioned the sheer amount of death that resulted from disease, as well as its ability to limit native resistance and allow European settlement. Thus, the tribes that Cartier described along the St. Lawrence River upon his visit in the 1530s will be gone by 1608. Please advance to the next slide entitled, French Settlement. Due to the French Wars of Religion and other conflicts, there was a long interlude between Cartier's voyage and subsequent voyages. Samuel de Champlain was a navigator, cartographer, soldier, explorer, geographer, ethnologist, diplomat, and chronicler. Truly a genius of his age and a man of many talents. 
His first voyager to Canada was in 1603, and he continued to explore until he founded Canada's first city of Quebec in 1608, just one year after the English founded Jamestown in Virginia. Quebec was originally meant to be a small fortified trading post to conduct business with the local inhabitants. The city grew very slowly, so that by 1625, only 85 colonists lived in Quebec, which pales in comparison to English migration further south. Because of this limited migration, Quebec is dependent on trade and the goodwill from natives, as well as shipping from France. Consequently, French colonists typically had better relations with natives, except for the Iroquois, than did the English. Thus, Champlain will establish trade and alliances with the Huron and other northern Algonquins. The French quickly learned the requirement of native diplomacy, gift-giving. One missionary noted, quote, Presence among these peoples dispatches all affairs of the country. They dry up tears, they appease anger, they open doors of foreign countries, they deliver prisoners. A chief hardly ever speaks or answers except by presence, end quote. Champlain will embrace a northern alliance, making the southern Iroquois blood enemies of the French. This was solidified in 1609, when Champlain accompanied a Huron, Algonquin, and Montanay military expedition against the Iroquois near Lake Champlain, close to where Fort Ticonderoga will be one day built. Three French and 60 Huron, Algonquin, and Montague formed a line of battle against 200 Iroquois. After much yelling, the Iroquois advanced, and Champlain out in front took aim at the enemy's chief, fired his arquebusier, and killed two chiefs instantly, as he had loaded four balls into it, sort of like a modern-day shotgun blast at 20 paces. Now another Frenchman off to the side shot and killed the other Iroquois chief, and they fled in confusion. France's native allies chased after them, killing over a dozen and capturing 15, whom were divided up and taken back to their respective villages to be tortured and killed in ritualistic celebrations. Except for this and one other major engagement in 1615, there was about an interim period of 20 years where there were no major battles between the French and the Iroquois. But when conflict finally did emerge, it was the Iroquois who would dominate. You should note that in this battle, we see natives using what we think of linear European tactics, such as the line of battle. But these experiences will change native tactics drastically in coming conflicts. The last part of Champlain's career was as governor of New France after 1620, which he unhappily accepted as his passion was for exploration. But still, colonization lagged behind as in 1650 there were only 700 colonists, and the city of Montreal only had a few dozen settlers. Ultimately, Canada became a royal province in 1663 due to the unprofitability of the venture and a series of conflicts that rocked New France. Under royal patronage, the transatlantic passage was paid for by the crown, and incentives were given to those who would reside in the territory. From 1663 to 1673, Louis XIV committed to strengthen the colony and sent women known as the King's Daughters, about 800 women from ages 15 to 30, to serve as husbands of the settlers. By 1672, the population grew to 6,700 inhabitants, up from 3,200 in 1663. 
This also greatly improved the gender balance of the colony and allowed for a natural reproduction of the colony's population. The point, though, is that New France was never the draw for the poor French peasants on the continent of Europe. But as we will see, conditions in England will cause more migrants to come to the New World, leading them to surpass New France in population and settlement concentration. This, in turn, will have profound consequences later during the imperial conflicts between the two kingdoms. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Trade. As a general rule, the French were more interested in fishing and acquiring furs than establishing permanent colonies. Because of this, the French relied on their native allies to a great extent more than any other European power, so they had to strike a careful balance between the fur trade and Jesuit missions of Indian conversion, which we'll talk about in a minute. When conversion threatens a trading relationship, the Jesuits are reined in by royal authorities. This St. Lawrence River Valley has a perfect location to engage in trade as the river has several navigable points that lead to the Great Lakes. From there, French traders could use the Ohio River Valley's extensive river network to penetrate deep into the continent, down the Mississippi River, and into Louisiana. An analogy is to think of Quebec as the heart, and the river of North America as the veins, with a circulatory system that connects everything to New France. While extensive, settlement is negligible, and the French presence is usually confined to traders, backwoodsmen, and a few scattered forts manned by irregulars, natives, and a few professional soldiers who intermarry with the surrounding populations. The French are able to establish profitable and extensive trade networks that relied on natives to hunt beavers and prepare pelts. This whole process was called the fur trade. Beaver furs were exchanged for steel tools, knives, swords, firearms, and other finished European goods. Natives soon became shrewd traders, using their positions of strength to get better quality goods in higher amounts for their beaver pelts. European goods were adapted for Indians' own purposes. Shiny goods and alcohol provided pathways to religious experiences called Manitou that were part of the religious ceremonies. So besides offering gifts and trade goods in exchange for native allies, soldiers intermarried, as did prominent traders, and this would make them related to the chiefs, thereby entering into native tribes and incorporating these allies further into French networks. This is especially true for the Great Lakes region, where French and Indian descendants often became chiefs, holding dual French and Indian identities, providing a powerful connection between these allies. With French extension of trade and diplomacy, this cut out the five nations from these agreements, which led to frequent raiding from the Iroquois. These raids will continue to escalate as we will see, and the 17th century in New France will be defined by them. More and more forts will be built, which though costly, will also enable the French to better project their power throughout their trade networks. Naturally, European competitors like the Dutch and later English will serve to create intense competition that will fuel future conflicts, though will also create mutual dependencies. Furthermore, competition will enable Indians to navigate imperial diplomacy by playing Europeans off of one another from a position of strength. A middle ground was created, especially in distant areas of the Great Lakes and the Ohio country, 
where Indians will adapt and secure their own interests, while also encountering conflict and chaos. In the end, New France never turns a profit, and one single sugar island was worth more than all of New France combined. And one quick mind exercise from the map. Do you think Europeans control all the territory they claim here? No. Maps are deceptive. They claim authority, but they do not reflect effective control or highlight the presence of natives who hold the real power on the continent. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Conversions. The French hoped to convert the Huron to Catholicism and make the natives more dependable and dependent like the Spanish missions in New Mexico and Florida. Trade and gifts alone could not be relied on to keep the natives dependent, so the French believed that perhaps the Christian faith could be leveraged. Though, that is not to say that many in France did not legitimately believe that it was their Christian duty to bring their God to natives. The first attempt at conversion occurred in 1615 by a group of French priests. They established Saint Marie among the Hurons. The priests at this mission suffered greatly, and after ten years, they had managed to only convert fifty natives, most of whom were converted on their deathbeds. In 1625, the Jesuit order arrived from France and stepped up their efforts at conversion. The most successful missionaries, like Jean de Brubois, adopted native language and adapted to native terms of engagement, living in native villages and going to them rather than forcing the natives to come to remote churches. The Jesuits used Catholic rituals and icons to appeal to natives, as certain aspects filled various traditional Indian ceremonies and icons. So rather than praying to a holy tree, you replace that tree with a cross. Rather than pray to an Indian fertility goddess, you make them pray to the Virgin Mary. And this is how actually Christianity spread through Europe as well, through adaptation and compromise. However, the Jesuits also imposed unpopular elements that forbade polygamy, divorce, and other native traditions. This cultural chasm will lead to a backlash by natives. Tribes will split down the middle between those who reject the missionaries and those who embrace them, even in just a cynical capacity. Some Jesuits were expelled from other tribes after disease or natural disasters were not alleviated by prayer and conversion. Ultimately, the conversion of the Huron failed when Jean de Brebeau and the Huron were destroyed in 1650 by the Iroquois during the Beaver Wars. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Dutch Trade. New France's first major European rival was to contend not with the English, but the Dutch. In the midst of the Dutch long revolt against Spanish dominance, Dutch traders sought to enter the New World market. In 1609, the Dutch East India Company hired the English captain, Henry Hudson, to find a Northwest Passage. After a failed attempt to go around the Arctic, he traveled to the area between the Chesapeake and the St. Lawrence River Valley, stumbling upon modern-day New York Bay and the Hudson River. After years of surveys and failed attempts, the Dutch established Fort Nassau, later named Fort Orange, in 1614 on the Hudson River near present-day Albany, New York, so that's upstate New York. In many ways, this was a superior trading position for the Dutch, as the Hudson allowed for year-round shipping, as it did not freeze like parts of the St. Lawrence. By making two adjacent river trade routes, 
the French and the Dutch inadvertently drew the battle lines for European commerce and empire. In addition, its position opened up trading opportunities for other Indian tribes. The Dutch provided better quality steel tools and weapons at cheaper prices than the French, who usually hesitated about trading firearms to the natives. The Dutch soon established a trade with a neighboring Mohican tribe, but they were attacked and forced west by the Mohawks, members of the Five Nations. Rather than attempt to resist, the Dutch recognized the Five Nations as their primary trading partner, and Fort Orange, though occupied by the Dutch, can be understood as an asset in virtual possession of the Mohawk. The Dutch trade proved to be a huge advantage for the Five Nations as they traded more weapons. And so as I will describe on a later slide, when the Iroquois become supplied with weapons, their raids increase against the French and their native allies, requiring more forts and troops to protect the French investments. As we have seen, access to goods created a complex entanglement of native and European powers, where both parties were dependent on one another to prosper. Please advance to the next slide entitled, War and Society. As the Dutch and French trade with various Indian tribes, European weapons and tools will enhance combat abilities. The Iroquois were already fearsome warriors, but it appears that they adapted to new technologies quicker than other native bands. Also, since the Dutch did not place trading restrictions on selling of guns to the Iroquois, they held a distinct advantage over France's allies. With new weapons, both sides cede continued access to them as vital to their survival and will seek to dominate the trade and cut out their rivalries. As we said before about native diplomacy, trade and war is the name of the game. This competition led to a conflict known as the Beaver Wars. These conflicts between the Iroquois and the French and their native allies were over hunting grounds and access to trade. Most of these wars lasted throughout the 17th century and formally ended in 1701, but not before massive destruction had occurred. These wars started small, with raids that we described earlier. As time progressed, the Iroquois war machine kicked into full gear, sending large war bands, sometimes several hundred strong, into New France. Cities like Montreal and Quebec were subject to Indian tax, where some were killed and others taken captive. New France is going to have a significant difficulty in stopping these raids, especially considering their manpower shortage. Crown intervention will be required, bringing fresh professional soldiers to the conflict to stem the Iroquois tide. Though initially checked, the Iroquois will raid deep into the Great Lakes regions, driving out native tribes like the Miami, the Illinois, the Shawnee, the Potawatomi, the Michigan, and even Siouan peoples like the Lakotas. These Siouan peoples will flee the Iroquois to the Great Plains, where they will adopt horse culture and become some of the most formidable horse warriors in the world, like the Mongols. Simultaneously, the Iroquois attacked the Susquehannock, who lived in southern Pennsylvania near the Maryland colony. As we will see going forward, the Iroquois will prove to be powerful English allies during their colonization schemes and provide a buffer between the expanding New England and Middle Colonies and New France. One other significant effect of the Beaver Wars is that the Huron, as an independent tribe, are destroyed, and the remaining survivors are taken as captives 
and adopted into the Five Nations. Indeed, this is the fate of numerous native tribes, like the Wenro, the Neutral, the Erie, and others, as large amounts of captives were taken and adopted into the Iroquois to replenish their losses from war and disease. After several decades of armed conflict, New France will make peace with the Iroquois, at a summit in the Great Lakes region, with over 30 tribal chieftains. Now, what spurred this change? Well, both sides saw that it was unprofitable and costly to continue the war, and the Iroquois witnessed the coming encroachment of the English in New York and Pennsylvania as a threat, and they sought to play the two European players off of one another in order to strengthen their own position. Thus, at the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701, peace was finally made between the French, the Iroquois, and 30 other tribes. If you have a moment, you should go look up the treaty itself and look at the symbols that the various native tribes use to distinguish themselves or give themselves an identity. It's a, it's a very powerful document. Well, this peace not only brought a close to the war, but each tribe's concerns were heard, their interests were represented, and it illustrates that conflict and war with natives was not an inevitable outcome. There were alternatives to ethnic cleansing and genocide, but the English and later the Americans will not follow this potential alternative. Instead, war, death, and destruction will continue for hundreds of years. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.